Hebrews chapter 11 today. We are in Hebrews chapter 11, continuing on with our series. Verses 11 and, sorry, verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to be. Quote, I will be back, wait for me. Unquote. My question to you is when you hear that simple command, but yet the reality that you have to wait for something, how long will you wait? Well, as college students, you know one of the most important things to do in life is to go to Walmart. <laughs> and when you're the car driver and your friends tells you, I'll be back, wait for me, I don't know, if you're my friend, I will give you a solid five minutes before I leave you to walk to Walmart by yourself. My waiting has an end. I grow weary of it. But let's maybe change the situation. What about this one? A soldier, about ready to ship off to an overseas conflict, tells his fiancée, I'll be back, wait for me. How long will she wait? Years? Months? Maybe a lifetime because he has gone missing? Waiting becomes a real struggle eventually, does it not? Or what about this? God comes to you with a promise and says, I will do this, trust, and wait for me. How long can you last? A month? A year? A decade? What about a lifetime? Where you, on your deathbed, are still clinging to this truth. God promised to do this, and I'm convinced he's going to do this. How long can you hold out with your faith? The reality is that we struggle with waiting for God to keep his, command, to keep his promises towards us. And the longer that we wait, the more in our frailty we are going to struggle, and that struggle is real. And that's why the author of Hebrews takes a short break from going through individual and individual and focuses our thoughts and minds on the reality that sometimes death will come to a child of God and those promises still have not been fulfilled. But does that mean a life has been wasted? And he's going to say loudly to us, absolutely not. In fact, it's God's plan for our lives not only to do things of faith or by faith like those in the hall of faith, but also God's plan for everyone who is not still around at the coming of Jesus Christ in the rapture that one day we are going to die and God expects us to die still having that faith. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared for them a city. Notice a few things as we go through and ask ourselves, how is it that you and I can work through these struggles and still live this life of faith, knowing it might not be here on earth that the promises come true? Notice that the author of Hebrews, he's introducing the section in a slightly different way. I actually thought it was kind of funny. I got assigned the one that says, and these all died. You're like, by faith, by faith, by faith, and they died. What a letdown. But yet it's not. The author does change from the norm. Notice just a few things as we look at this. Number one, the pattern is changed. Instead of saying by faith and then introducing what is happening, these all died in faith. You know, I think back through what has already been mentioned as far as what these people of faith have done, and I think of maybe Noah. You know that there are actually only two people that I know of that have actually built the ark? Noah and Ken Ham. <laughs> but I will just say, I trust one boat to float, the other one I don't, when it comes down to it. These massive acts of faith are not what we're talking about here. Because they didn't die by faith. Faith is an action. Death is something that we can do, frankly, even apart from faith. The pattern has changed. But also the type of faith that we're looking at, not the type of faith, but how faith is described. It's not by faith, but it is in faith. Talking about a manner still filled with faith in their walk with God, they passed away. It wasn't that that faith led them to do that. It's that while they were going through death's doors, they still believed. And then also he changes the pattern in that we have here a group. These all died. Who are the these? Well, it could go all the way back to Abel, but I think it actually starts with Abraham. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned back in verse 11. Sorry, verse 9. Sarah's mentioned in verse 11. And these patriarchs, what was characteristic of their life? They were sojourners, and that's what the rest of our text is going to talk about. Them being sojourners. And the fact that they are talking about a group of people now while addressing the patriarchs gives us some indication that what's being talked about here is going to be true of us too if we are faith-filled. Second, what else do we observe in our passage? Well, everything that happens between these all died in faith and then you drop back down to verse 16, wherefore God is not ashamed... Everything that happens in between there is ultimately a description of what it looks like to die in faith. So you could say that the Goodwill Condensed Paraphrase version would read like this. These patriarchs had faith even through death, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now we have here a truth. God is not ashamed. Notice how it's Declining a negative thing? This is kind of like you saying to a friend, you won't be sorry. You won't be sorry means what? You will be happy about this. Which, by the way, depending on the quality of your friend, if they say you won't be sorry, don't trust them. That is a moral, that is not a principle from Scripture, that's just my experience. Or maybe I just have bad friends, who knows? But God was not ashamed, meaning God was pleased by their faith, just like we're told in verse 6. 
but without faith it is impossible to please him. Now, how do we know that God was not ashamed? Well, this is alluding back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, where God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, introduce me to the people of Israel as Yahweh, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And repeatedly, he's associating himself with the patriarchs and doing so because they lived this life of faith. And how did God respond? How did God show his pleasure? He rewarded them. Notice the end of verse 16. He hath prepared for them a city. This was something that was for their advantage. For them, the city was prepared. It was ultimately what they desired too. The previous verses, they looked for a city. Abraham looked for a city whose maker and foundation, whose designer and whose builder was God. They looked for a country. And God says, I'm rewarding that looking. I have prepared for you this city. And notice how it is also in the past. It's already done. God has already in part rewarded them for their life of faith. And so the key thing that we see about God in this text is one that we've been seeing all throughout this passage, and that is that God rewards faith. So what then do you and I do? What's our application? God rewards faith, which means you must live a faith-filled life to the end. It's not just that God wants us to do these great things and step out in faith and put our faith to action. It's that he expects us to do that every day in every way for all of our life. So that it could be true of us, we also died in faith. There's a reward, but there is a life that has to be lived in order to ultimately receive that reward. So what does it take? What does it take for us to live this faith-filled life to the end like they lived it? Well, that's what the middle section of our passage is talking about. And we're going to see three different truths that explain what it means to live this faith-filled life. Truth number one is you must hope in God's future promises. Look at verse, 11, sorry, verse 13 again. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Notice it points out clearly they had not obtained the promises. They had not seen God's full work in their life, but yet they were convinced about them. They had this hope about them. And we see that because they have seen them. And they have embraced them. That idea of embrace is to welcome from a distance, not a physical distance brought a temporal distance they saw it in the future and it was as if they said that is here right now and i'm excited about it what would that look like well let me paint you a quick picture of what that would look like one of my favorite times of my week is right about the 5 5 15 p.m which means it's one of my three favorite times of the day breakfast lunch and supper and i'm up in old maine and I'm kind of coming down the hill right out of Old Main, coming down to the D.C., and there are two types of people that come out of the door when I am coming down the hill. 
there's all of you. And I really, truly hope that you are not waiting for me, because that's kind of stalker-ish, okay? A little creepy. Don't be weird and creepy. Moral number two of the sermon. But I really, really hope that when you do see me afar off, you don't run over to the end of the uh, bridge area and jump up and down and be, Dr. Goodwill, Dr. Goodwill. That is also really weird. (laughs) Person number one. Person number two, my children, who are waiting for me to come because then they get to eat and see all of you. It's really not about me, but they get to see all of you eating with them. And they wait for me. And when they see me afar off, they embrace me, as our text says. They welcome me from a distance. They run out, and they cry, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And then one of them or two of them jumps on me, and eventually I'm going to fall over. But that's besides the point. This is what the patriarchs did. They saw, they got excited, and they greeted it as if it was right there with them, even though it was still coming down the hill, these promises. Hope in God's future promises. That's what it looks like. What does that demand of us, though? Brief application, because we're going to try to hit some more application on this point, too. But if you're going to hope, have this steadfast expectation that God's promises are real, you have to know God's promises, which means you're in his word. You have to be thinking about God's promises, which means you're meditating on his word. You can't hope if you don't know and care about it. You have to know and care about it. We hope in God's future promises. It's one way that we live faith-filled until the end. Number two, we also acknowledge that this is just our temporary home. Notice what it says at the end of verse 13. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This confession is them acknowledging or admitting that something was true about themselves. Just like we confess our sins to God and say, this is my sin and this breaks your law. So they look at themselves and say, I am a stranger. This world is not my home. And the patriarchs themselves, in the words of Scripture, acknowledge that they were pilgrims. Genesis 23, verse 4, Abraham to the Hittites talks about how he was a stranger and a pilgrim among them. Isaac says to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 4, that as he's sending him away to Padam Aram to go get married, he's coming back eventually because this land was his inheritance where you are a stranger. The narrator in Genesis 37, verse 1, Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger. But all these Genesis passages don't do justice to what Hebrews is saying. Because in Genesis, stranger geographically on this earth, but Hebrews says they were strangers because nowhere on earth was their home. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us an insight into their lives where something in these patriarchs understood even this promised land that I'm still a stranger in because it's not yet mine, even this isn't ultimately my true destination. 
Abraham didn't look for a city with strong walls that could protect him from his enemies. Abraham looked for a city whose designer and builder was God. You can't live a faith-filled life unless you completely acknowledge that this is just temporary. This is not all that there is to be. Because what happens if you're trying to live by faith and trying to maintain this faith throughout your life if everything here below is what you're counting on? Well, you might get a few months and years down the road. But then eventually, old age starts to kick in. And you're like, you know, God, you you probably only have about a decade to answer this promise of yours. You know, God, I got that terminal cancer diagnosis. You probably only have six months to answer this promise. God, why in the world are you not answering your promises? And God says, no, you didn't get it. This is not reality. This is not your future. That is your future, and that is where you're going to be, and that's where my promises are going to be completely fulfilled. If we don't understand this is temporary in light of the eternal, we're not going to continue and live by faith. We are not of this world. Want proof of that? Read 1 Peter. He's pretty clear. Believers, we are aliens in this world. But is this your confession today? I hope most of you would say, yes, I believe this. I assent mentally that this is true, but my question is not that. My question is, can you prove that you believe it today? So what about some diagnostic questions? Question, do you show more religious fervor towards regular gaming time rather than your regular Bible reading time? Imaginary achievements in a virtual world mean nothing. Nothing but investing in eternity and knowing your eternal God means everything. We're but temporary here. Do you regularly change what you wear, how you speak, or what you do based on the opinions of your friends? Or do you regularly change what you wear, what you speak, and what you do because of the opinion of God? One of those shows I'm comfortable here. One of those shows I'm a pilgrim here. Do you avoid confronting roommates about their foolishness or sin because it's not really your business? Or do you see what God wants for them in the greater picture And you lovingly come alongside. Do you bristle when somebody challenges you to change or do better or stop that because they're trying to help you live that faith-filled life? Or are you just like, I'm just trying to enjoy the moment? Do you long for a more earthly situation or relationship? I really want that guy. I really want that girl. I really want this situation. Or when you look around in life, do you say, Lord, there's so much hurt. There's so much pain. Come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. One of those shows we're comfortable here. One of them shows we see it as temporary. Acknowledgement is more than lip service. If you truly believe this, it should change what you're doing today. Will you let it change what you're doing today? We live this faith-filled life by acknowledging 
that this is just our temporary home. And then our last point, by valuing God's plan as better. You see, faith looks at the eternal plan that God has given and says, that is way better than what I could have come up with. That's way better than what this person could have offered. That is better. Faith is a value judgment. Which is better for us? The character of God and the promises of God or what we can feel and touch and see here on this earth. Let's go back to our text, verse 14. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they'd come, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. When it says they that say such things, isn't it kind of an odd way of saying it? Couldn't they have said the patriarchs or just them? But by phrasing it in such way, it means that if you and I have that same conviction, we are now party with them. Which means that reward is now something that God also rewards in our faith. The patriarchs aren't the only ones that can come to the same conviction. It's mandatory for all of God's people that we live this faith. We seek the things that are above, as Colossians 3 tells us. But notice a few points about their desire. Verse 14, they clearly, they declare plainly that they seek. No ifs, ands, or buts. No ambiguity. No little fog in their life. It was obvious to anybody looking at them that they were looking for something different. Is there something obvious in my life, in your life? Or do we have to think long and hard trying to prove to our friends that we're living for heaven? Seek shows an intentionality. It's more than just looking around and observing. They're watching for it. You also notice how verse 15 starts, and truly if they had been mindful. This is giving us a conditional statement that has no basis in reality. All right, you can kind of think through the author of Hebrew kind of winking, and if, wink, wink, they didn't, even if they had, but they didn't, if they had thought and meditated on what they had in the here and now, they could have returned those patriarchs. But let's let their words speak to us. Genesis 24, verse 6, Abraham, talking to his servant who's about to go off and find Rebekah for Isaac, says, Beware that thou bring my son not hither again. Don't bring my son out of that, to back to that country. My son ought to be here where God wants him to be. Isaac challenged J Jacob to return after he found his wives up in Padam Aram. Jacob to his sons at the very end of his life, Genesis 49, verse 29, he charged them and said unto them, I am gathered to my people, I'm about to die, just like verse 13 says he did. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. Take me back to God's promised land. 
because that's where I belong, where God wants me to be. And rather than being distracted by the pleasures around them, later on we talk about verse 16, they desire a better country. Desired is a strong word there. They craved it. They could not be satisfied without it. In fact, this same verb is used in a few other places that kind of illumine us to how desperate they were to seek this better country. The first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul actually used it to describe craving money. Crave after money. And have you ever seen somebody who's totally devoted to getting stuff? How mad they look, how insane sometimes the things that they do, that craving, unsatisfied unless they get it. Or then there's the positive example in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The man who desires the office of a bishop. Have you ever talked to a pastor who's been in ministry for 20 years, having prepared for 10 years of school before that? And he looks at you and says, I can't be satisfied doing anything else with my life. And you're just like, I'm sorry, Pastor. You have people complaining. <laughs> you have low salary. Uh, you're going totally contrary to culture. And plus, you have to put up with me. I mean, like, life is bad. But they look at us and say, I can't do anything else. I have to do this. It's my heart's desire. Craving, heart's desire. This is what the patriarchs did. They valued God's plan as better than anything they could have come up with. Bucket lists are kind of a key thing in life. Everyone has their bucket list. I won't share what's on my bucket list because it's probably pretty lame. But I did look up on the internet what are on some people's bucket lists, and it's things like seeing the northern lights, going on a cruise, skydiving. I get bucket list and death wish kind of mixed up sometimes with that, seems to be. Swimming with dolphins. Apparently that's a huge thing. But I don't think that the patriarchs actually had a bucket list. According to this passage, they didn't. In fact, they didn't have a bucket list. They had, sorry, pardon the alliteration, a better list. A list of better things that they should be doing because those things are of eternal value. And because they were so convinced of God's promises, they were doing all of life, all the time, all the way through it, by faith. Because they were doing that, God rewarded them. He was not ashamed to be called their God. But might he be ashamed at times to be called our God? As you think through your day, think through your weekend, how did you live a faith-filled life? Did you think about his future promises and hope in them? Did you acknowledge that this is just temporary? Did you value his plan for your life as better? Or did all the distractions take away from that 
and so God would not have been pleased. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, in the middle of the parable of the servant and the talents, Jesus says to the faithful servant, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's another way of saying, God was not ashamed, for he had prepared the city for them. We can get that same well done when we live this life of faith to the end. God gives us these future promises, let us hope. God tells us this is temporary, let us believe him. God says, my plan is better, let's trust him on that. And let's live faith-filled lives to the end. Our Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you help ingrain this truth in our life. Help us to change how we feel, how we speak, what we do today, so that you can receive all the honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.